welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, if you're new, we're really, really glad that you're here. Would love to meet you after the service. Uh, do us a favor, like Pastor Justin said, grab that cadet card, fill it out. We just wanna follow up with you and get to know you a little bit better. Um, one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that when our relationship with God changes, our relationship with other people changes as well. So if you have God as your heavenly father, you also have other believers as your spiritual brothers and sisters. It kind of goes hand in hand. And so in response to the grace of God, here's what we wanna do as a church. We strive to be a church that supports one another like family. In response to the grace of God, we wanna be a church that supports one another like family, that takes that spiritual family truth from the scriptures and really lives it out in our day-to-day lives. Now, we don't do this perfectly, okay? We are by no means a perfect church. We don't always hit the target in this regard, but man, I've been so encouraged over the last couple weeks about some stories I've heard that just feel like spiritual family to me. So I wanna tell you a couple of them. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I know of a family who was selling their house. And if you've ever sold a house, you know you have to get it like more beautiful than it's ever been. You're like, the, the fridge has never been this shiny, but it is this weekend, you know? And the problem is then you have to keep it that way, right? So that all the people that come in think your house has always been this clean and they wanna buy it, okay? Track it with me? Well, this family has multiple kids and a dog. So it's very, very difficult to keep a house clean when you have multiple kids and a dog. Can I get an amen on that, okay? Moms, Beck and I are on this, okay? Anyway, so they're like, man, what are we gonna do? So another family in the church says, hey, why don't you guys just come bring your kids and your dog and stay with us for the weekend so that you don't have to worry about it. The house will stay beautiful. People can come by and show it. And I just thought, man, that just feels like spiritual family, right? That feels like what you would do with, you know, your aunts or uncles or whatever. And I was so encouraged by that. Uh, another story I heard about was um, a mom who couldn't be in church because her kids got sick. And if you're a parent, you know how frustrating that can be, right? You're, man, you, you're excited to be in worship together. Man, you can't wait to see your friends. You can't wait to serve. You can't wait to worship. And then like Saturday night, man, your kid gets sick. Not that that's ever happened to me like last night, but like, hey, babe, I love you, okay? All right, so that's what happens, right? So man, I know of a mom. She couldn't be in worship. She was bummed. So then I know of a young adult who knew that she couldn't be there. So after church, she drove to Dunkin' Donuts. She got a big old thing of coffee and she took her to her just to say, hey, we miss you and we love you, right? What is that? That's just spiritual family. That's just like, man, I just wanna be thoughtful and tell you that I miss you. Here's my, here's my favorite, okay? A couple weeks ago, I see one of our college students. She's walking in wearing a baby carrier. I think, well, this is interesting, okay? And uh, you know, but whatever, I don't know who you know. So, hey, what, what's up? You know, she walks in and I don't think about it. And then I wait and I go, wait a minute, that's Pastor Justin's baby. You know, like, why is, and it's just, you know, college student who, who helps, you know, care for Pastor Justin's kids. And I was just like, man, doesn't that feel like spiritual family? Like, oh yeah, aunt so-and-so has the kid, you know, this morning because I'm gonna be on stage. Um, um, man, we are by no means perfect in this, but this is the kind of community that we're striving to create, that in response to the grace of God, in response to the fatherhood of God, man, we would treat one another like spiritual brothers and sisters. And so what I wanna do is I wanna pray that that would be the case, but I wanna stop real quick. If you're here and you're saying, man, I would love to be a part of a community like that, or I would love to help create a community like that, then make plans to join us at our next Weekender, okay? The Weekender's coming up March 17th and 19th. It's in a few weeks. Justin will tell you more about it at the end of the service, but it's your on-ramp and your inroad to all things community at our church. And so if you wanna be a part of a church that, man, treats one another like spiritual family, the Weekender is the right place to be, okay? So let's pray. Let's ask God to help us build that kind of church, and then we'll jump into Genesis 31. Lord, you are my heavenly father, and every single person here who is saved by Christ can call you heavenly father as well. What a privilege. And that means that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help us to live that out faithfully here in our church. God, we know we'll never do it perfectly, but help us to faithfully treat and to support one another like spiritual family, to help each other through the ups and downs of life, and to just be a community that's like a shining light here in Charlottesville where people say, man, those people truly love one another, and I wanna go see, man, what that is all about. God, thank you for being our father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, if you have a Bible, meet me in Genesis chapter 31, verse one. Genesis chapter 31, uh, verse one. For the last several weeks, we have been studying the life of a man named Jacob, who is what I believe to be one of the most relatable characters in the Old Testament, because he dealt with a lot of the same things that we deal with. And in Genesis 31, here's what's gonna happen. God is gonna speak to Jacob and change his life. God is gonna speak to Jacob and change his life. Let me ask you, have you ever had a life-changing moment? Have you ever had a moment in your life that you look back on and say, man, every, everything was different after that moment? Maybe it was when you stood in front of, man, your friends and your family and, and God Almighty and you said, I do. Right, maybe it was when the doctor looked at you and said, it's a girl. Maybe it was when, man, the, the medical school of your dream sent you an email that said, accepted. Maybe it was when your son called you up and said, you're a grandma. Right, that there's these moments in our lives that, man, just change everything. Most of our days are pretty ordinary, right? Like most of our days, we kind of do our routine, right? We, we kind of go through the motions, rinse and repeat, and then every once in a while, something happens, man, that, that changes everything, kind of changes the trajectory of our lives. Well, that's what happens to Jacob in Genesis 31. After 20 pretty routine years of, of living in Haran, of dealing with, man, difficult in-laws, of trying to, to sort out family drama, God interrupted Jacob's life and changed everything. God led him onto a path that was risky, uncomfortable, and ultimately very, very meaningful. And guys, that's still what God does today. Jesus Christ interrupts our lives and calls us to follow him. He breaks into our minutiae, and he, he calls us to respond and to follow him into what is risky and what is uncomfortable, but is what is ultimately spiritually significant. To become a Christian means to respond when Jesus interrupts. And I would suggest that to grow as a Christian means to continually be interruptible. To become a Christian means to respond when Jesus interrupts your life, and to grow as a Christian means to continue to be interruptible when Jesus calls you. But it's not easy. Right? It wasn't easy for Jacob, as we're gonna see in Genesis 31. It's not easy in our lives today. When God interrupts our lives, we need the same three things that we're gonna find Jacob had in this text. We need the word of God, and we need the people of God, and we need the presence of God. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna walk through this chapter, chapter 31. We're gonna see how God interrupted Jacob's life and what he needed to respond and how God interrupts our lives and what we need to respond today as well. All right, but before we get to Genesis 31, I gotta summarize a whole bunch of context, okay? Because a lot has happened since we last hung out with Jacob last week, all right? So a little bit of context here. Um, in chapter 29, Jacob had been living with his uncle Laban uh, for years, and there was a lot of drama over who he was trying to marry, okay? So he wanted to marry this girl named Rachel, but Laban tricks him. He ends up marrying the wrong girl named Leah, and then he also marries Rachel. So he ends up with two wives, which is one too many, right? And it's all, it's all kinds of drama. So if you were here last week, you heard about that. I can't rehash the whole thing. All right, well, as you can imagine, when you marry two wives and their sisters, things go from bad to worse, okay? So they get very competitive with one another, uh, and they're both trying to give Jacob sons. They're like, okay, if I bear children for Jacob and their sons, he's going to love me. He's going to favor me. So they get into this crazy, like childbearing competition, wherein like they're having kids and they're like, hey, marry my servant and then have kids through her. It's very crazy. Okay. So read chapter 30. It's a lot of fun. And by the end of 14 years, uh, Jacob now has four wives, which is three too many. And he has 12 children. He has 11 sons and one daughter by four different women. Okay. This family is begging to be a reality television show. Okay. I mean, things are just, are are just crazy. All right, so that's kind of the first half of Genesis chapter 30. So it's been 14 
years. And Jacob goes to his uncle Laban and says, Laban, I've served you for the 14 years I told you I'd serve you. I wanna leave. I, you know, it's crazy here. I wanna go back to my homeland and my home country. And the thing is, Laban can't make him stay. He doesn't have him under contract anymore. And so what he does is he makes him a financial offer. You see, Laban knew that the reason his business had been blessed was because, man, God was blessing Jacob. So he said, hey, no, 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 don't leave. Stay here with me and I'll give you really, really good commission and then you can grow wealthy. Okay, so he convinces Jacob to stay. Jacob says, all right, I'll stay with you another six years to try to build my wealth. So the first half of chapter 30 is like Jacob builds his family. The second half of chapter 30 is Jacob builds his flocks, okay? And in these six years, Jacob and Laban keep doing to one another what they've been doing for 14 years. They keep trying to deceive one another. So Laban is always changing Jacob's commission and somehow Jacob works out this, this kind of system where all the healthiest, strongest livestock become him and all the weak livestock become his father's, all right? So at the end of chapter 30, Jacob's got four wives, he's got 12 kids, and he's got a whole lot of livestock. All right, there we go. Summarize all of chapter 30 for you. All right, 31 verse one says this. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban, so his uncle, were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So had Jacob actually taken anything from Laban? The answer is no. But Jacob had increased in terms of wealth proportionate to Laban, and that had made Laban's sons very, very jealous, right? They were filled with envy of Jacob, and that led them to slander him. You see, envy is a feeling of resentment caused by someone else's success, and envy often leads to gossip, right? Gossip is one of the primary ways that Satan attacks the church today. Right, one of the primary ways that, that Satan saps the spiritual vitality and power of a local church is to just divide it through gossip. And the mother of gossip is envy, right? So the people that you are most tempted to envy or to gossip about are the people you are most envious of, right? Very few of us gossip about people that we're not envious of, but it's like, man, when somebody has what we want, they have the job we want, they have the family that we want, but they have the relationship that we want, they have the, the house that we want, man, all of a sudden we find reasons to disparage them, right? And we're very tempted to kind of whisper something here or make a snide remark there, right? And so that's how Satan kind of infiltrates the church often and destroys it. The good news is that, man, if you're satisfied in Christ, if you're not looking to the world for your satisfaction, but if you're satisfied in Christ and you're, man, profoundly grateful for what God has given you and you trust him as your provider, man, then Satan's not gonna be able to stir you up towards gossip in the way that he stirred up Laban's sons. So Laban's sons are envious of Jacob, so they start gossiping. All of a sudden, Laban is upset with Jacob, even though before he was pretty favorable to him. And then in verse three is when God interrupts Jacob's life and he speaks to him. Verse three, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. There's the deceiving nature of Laban. But God did not permit him to harm me. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. So that's God's way of saying, man, I've got you. I'm protecting you, even though Laban's trying to harm you. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now, here's the command, arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So this is the moment where God interrupts Jacob and everything about Jacob's life changes. 
The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, I know Laban's been trying to cheat you. I haven't allowed him to, to cheat you. And you've been here for 20 years and it's time to change. The time has come to make a clean break with Laban, with Haran, and go back to the land of your father. I want you to take your four wives, your 12 kids, your employees, all your livestock, and travel 500 miles back to your homeland. I get stressed out taking my kids to restaurants, right? And you're like, what in the, you want me to do what, right? I mean, this is crazy, right? God, God interrupts Jacob's life. He calls him to do something very uncomfortable, very difficult, very risky, right? But he says, this is what I want you to do. Um, one of the fundamental attributes of God in the scriptures, this is one of the things that makes God very different from every other understanding of God around the world is that the God of the Bible speaks. The God of the Bible speaks. So if you think about it, how did God create the world? Well, God created the world by speaking. How did God form a covenant with Abraham? Well, he formed a covenant with Abraham by speaking. How did God establish Israel as his special people? We did it by speaking to them from the top of Mount Sinai. How did God bring, man, life to dead bones in, in Ezekiel 37? Well, he did it by speaking to those bones. How does, how does God create believers today? It's well, when it's when his word, his spoken word is proclaimed and we respond in faith. Man, the God of the Bible speaks. And I, when we think about God speaking, I, I think we tend to get excited about it. Right, we're like, man, I want God to speak to me, right? Isn't it, I really want God to speak to me. I want like a word from God. <laughs> but if you look at the Bible, when God speaks to his people, he usually, usually calls them to do very difficult things. So like, don't get too excited about God speaking to you, okay? Because like, he shows up to Abraham when Abraham's really old and is like, hey man, I want you to leave everything you've ever known and I want you to go into a country that you don't know. And Abraham's like, great, where are we going? And God's like, I'll show you when we get there. And all you control freaks are like, ah, you know, like, like, ah, I'm so anxious, right? And he just doesn't tell him. He shows up to Moses when Moses is out in the wilderness for 40 years. He's like, Moses, got a great plan. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go confront Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let his entire labor force of slaves go for free. And Moses is like, God, that doesn't sound like a great plan, man. You know, like, like, do you know who Pharaoh is, you know? And he's like, this is what I want you to do. Very, very uncomfortable. Think about Jesus when he called John on the Sea of Galilee. Like, John's got a family fishing business. He's like, for generations, they've been building this business. Jesus just shows up and he's like, leave your nets, drop them, leave the business, follow me. And you're like, I don't know if I want God to speak to me now, you know? Like, when God shows up in the scriptures and he speaks to his people, he often calls them to do very difficult, very uncomfortable and very risky things, right? He spoke to Abraham, he spoke to Jacob, he spoke to John, he spoke to Moses, and he speaks to us today through the scriptures. And so one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is are we listening? Man, are we listening to God when he speaks to us? When was the last time that the word of God sounded out like a trumpet in your life and led you to change? When was the last time that you can look back and says, I was like that, now I'm like this, and the difference was the Bible? I was reading the scriptures and something challenged me and it confronted me and I changed, I didn't edit the Bible. You see, you don't really know if you believe the Bible is God's word until it calls you to change. If, if we only obey the things in the scriptures that we like, we don't, we don't actually know if it's the, the word of God, it's just things that we happen to agree with because of our upbringing or our particular perspective. It's when the Bible gets in our business. It's when God's word challenges us and says, hey, no, 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 I want you to leave Iran and I want you to go back to Canaan. I want you to do something risky and uncomfortable, something that you don't wanna do. It's when we then say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That's when we know that we believe that the scriptures are the word of God. You see, more than anything else in this passage, here's what happens. God interrupts Jacob, he speaks his word to him, and he changes Jacob's life. He says, arise, leave this place, and return to the land of your fathers. Here's what God did in Jacob's life. He gave him a new goal. 
He gave him a new goal. And if we're gonna walk faithfully with God, we need the same thing. We need the word of God to set our goals. We need the word of God to set our goals. Jacob didn't know how his wives were gonna respond. He didn't know how Laban was gonna respond. He didn't know how he was gonna get there. He didn't know how long it was gonna take, but he did know one thing. He knew where he was supposed to go. I'm supposed to go back to the land of my fathers. God has set a new goal in my life and this is where I'm going. Before this day, his goal was like, make as much money as possible by multiplying the flocks and stealing from my uncle. Right after this day, it was like, pack everybody up, go back to the land of my forefathers. Man, God gave him a new goal in life. And that's really what's happening in every kind of famous calling story in the Bible. God is giving people new goals in life. You ever thought about Isaiah and Isaiah chapter six? Man, beforehand, Isaiah was just kind of living his life. God shows up in his, Isaiah's life. Man, he has this incredible vision of God, the holiness of God, and God gives him a new mission. He gives him a new goal. Man, that's what, that's what happened in every single uh, encounter with the disciples, right? They're just kind of living their life. God shows up, new goal. That's what happened with Paul on his way to Damascus. Man, Paul's goal is persecute the church. He encounters Jesus. His goal is, uh, is propagate the gospel, right? It radically gets changed because he encounters God. God totally refined and reformed his goals in life. And that matters a lot for us because practically speaking, our goals determine our behavior. Our goals determine our behavior. So think about this. If I think the goal of marriage is personal and romantic fulfillment, then I'm gonna be very, very frustrated if I don't feel personally and romantically fulfilled. Right? If I think that the goal of singleness is to stop being single as soon as possible, then I'm going to date people I probably shouldn't date because I think the goal of singleness is to get out of singleness. Right? And so what I believe the goal is is going to impact my behavior. Here's what this means. If I wanna walk with God, if I wanna increasingly become like Christ, I need to let his, goal, his word set my goals. I need to let the word of God refine and reform what I think the goal of my life should be. So for example, some of you are dating. Right, what's the goal of dating? Right, is the goal of dating to, to have something to do with someone you find attractive and fun? Or is the goal of dating something deeper? Is the goal of dating about, man, finding a godly spouse you can build a life with? Uh, many of you have, are, are, are working, have careers. What's the goal of your career? Is the goal of your career to ad advance as much as possible and have as much influence as possible and then make as much money as possible? Or, or is the goal something else? Is the goal, man, to glorify God, to provide for your family, but to be able to do so in a way that, that you can still grow spiritually and be meaningfully involved in a local body of believers? Many of us are parents. What's the goal of parenting? Right, is, is the goal of parenting that, man, we give our kids all the opportunities that, that they could ever have? Is the goal of parenting that we give our kids what we didn't have as kids? Is the goal of parenting that we protect our kids from harm? Or is the goal of parenting something more robust and a little bit more difficult and, and more spiritual? Is it that we would form their character and point them to their need for Jesus Christ? You see, what you think your goal in life is will determine your behavior and your priorities. And I think if you ask the average American what their goal in life is, they'd probably say something like to be happy, right? And if you got to know them better, if it was one of your friends, what you would learn is you would learn what they think they need to be happy. Right, so I wanna be happy and that means you know, get married or I wanna be happy and that means live in a cool city or I wanna be happy and that means you know, have a stable job or I wanna be, you know, whatever it is. Right? And, and happiness isn't a bad thing, but it's a very bad goal for your life. Happiness isn't a bad thing, but it's a bad goal for your life because here's what we all know because if you've lived any time, you've experienced this, happiness comes and goes. And sometimes the happiest moments of your life are shot through with grief. You ever had that experience? where you're like, man, I got this thing I've always wanted, and yet at the same time, this other thing that's really, really tragic is happening. It's like, I, I, I'm so happy that things are going well in my marriage, and yet, man, my, my dad was just diagnosed with cancer. 
It's like if we make happiness our goal, it's going to constantly elude us and in the end, it's gonna disappoint us. But if you are a follower of Christ, you've actually been given a much higher and much more stable meaning for your life than simply happiness. You see, the meaning in your life is not to be as happy as you can. The meaning in your life is to worship God and to enjoy him forever. And to worship God and to enjoy him forever. That's what you were created to do. To worship God means to make him look great with your life. Man, to proclaim who he is, man, to your family and to your coworkers and to the nations of the earth. And enjoy him forever means to start experience abundant life in him now that will continue on into eternity. Man, that's a purpose and that's a goal in life that's steady and that's firm and that's steadfast and that isn't shaken by all the, man, the changes that we encounter, man, in this world. And so the question that I think we have to ask ourselves is what's my goal in life? What, what do I think winning looks like, right? Can I rejoice and can I say, man, things are going, going well and I'm accomplishing my purpose in life even if I'm suffering, even if my marriage is really, really difficult, when, when my child is diagnosed with special needs, Man, when I get let go from my job, right? It depends. If I think my goal in life is ease and comfort and happiness, I'm not gonna be able to rejoice in those moments. But if I've allowed the word of God to refine and to reform my goals, I can say, man, this is a difficult season and, and this is a season of suffering, man, but this hasn't shaken and this hasn't taken away my primary purpose in life, which is to glorify the Lord. I heard of a godly businessman who I think did this so well uh, so when, when he started off in his career, he was a believer and he just said, okay, I wanna glorify God in my career. I wanna provide for my family, but I'm gonna prioritize my marriage and my kids, my family above my career. Uh, but he was good at his job. And so he got all these promotion opportunities, but every promotion opportunity required his family to move and kind of restart over with community and church and for him to travel more, so to, to be away more. And so he declined promotion after promotion after promotion. I mean, you wanna talk about countercultural. He kept not doing the very thing that every other person in the American you know, commerce system says to do, like get ahead as fast as possible. He kept turning down more money, more responsibility, you know, more travel, more influence, right? And the reason he did it was because that wasn't his primary goal in life. He pushed off career advancement so that he could invest in his marriage and in his kids. Now, here's what's amazing about his story. He's now in his 60s. He has an incredible marriage. He and his wife have been married for over 40 years. He, he has kids who love him, who want to be with he and his mom. He has a great relationship with his, with his grandkids. And he and his wife now serve as marriage and parent mentors at their church, which is a great church, right? What he did was he, he prioritized biblical goals in his life. And he said, you know what? I might not make as much money as I could. I might not have as much influence. I might not have the same letters behind my name that my peers from college are gonna have. But do you know what I'm gonna have? I'm gonna have a strong relationship with God. I'm gonna have a 40-year marriage. I'm gonna have a legacy in my kids and grandkids that I'm proud of. And I'm gonna invest in a church that I love. Man, he, he let the word of God refine and reform his goals. It was very countercultural, but I think he would tell you from 60 years into his life, like, I'm so glad that I did it. So the question for all of us is where do we need to let the word of God refine our goals in life? Where do we need to let the word of God refine and reform our goals in life? That's what God did in Jacob's life. He gave him a new goal and that's what he wants to do in ours. Verse 14, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Whatever God has said to you, do. Can we just imagine this scene for a minute? Uh, Jacob has a quiet time, all right? Hey girls, come on out here, got some news. 
We gotta pack up the kids, we gotta pack up the livestock, we gotta pack up the servants, we gotta leave the only place you've ever known, we gotta travel 500 miles back to my hometown where you've never been. Uh, oh, by the way, I have a murderous brother who lives there. <laughs> right, we're gonna have to deal with that. Like, can you just imagine, ladies, if your husband comes in after his quiet time, all right, God told us we're moving to Minnesota. You'd be like, I don't think God said that. <laughs> I don't think God said that, you know, I don't have a verse. Right, it's crazy, like this is, this is a remarkably unsettling thing that Jacob comes and says to his wives and yet they respond well. You would not expect them to respond well and yet what do they say? Whatever God has said to you, do. Whatever God has said to you, do. What fantastic advice, what fantastic encouragement. You can tell you have a great friend or a great spouse because they encourage you towards risky obedience. You know you have a great spouse or a great friend when they look at you and they say, do it. Whatever God has called you to do, do it. If they put wind in your sails and they put courage in your heart, man, to follow the Lord, man, you've got a great friend. You have got a great spouse. And that's what Rachel and Leah do for Jacob in this moment. It's this massively scary moment where I've gotta like leave everything I've ever known. I've gotta go back to my home, homeland and deal with all that stands in my way. And they said, let's do it. Man, let's do what God has called us to do. Their advice actually parallels the exact same advice that Mary, the mother of Jesus, gave to some servants in John chapter two. She looked at the servants and she said, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it, All right, which is fantastic discipleship advice. Man, Rachel and Leah put wind in Jacob's sails and courage in his heart. And this leads to the second thing that we're gonna need if we're gonna listen to God and follow him when he interrupts our lives. Number two, we need the people of God to help us endure. We need the people of God to help us endure. In an overwhelming, risky, scary moment, Rachel and Leah gave Jacob strength. And their actions remind me of a story, an event in Exodus 17 in the life of Moses. So as Moses was leading the Israelites through the wilderness, they were attacked by the Amalekites. And Moses went up to the top of a nearby hill to pray on behalf of Israel. And, and as long as he was praying, Israel was prevailing, but when he stopped praying, then Israel was defeated. And as long as he had his arms up in the air, interceding on Israel's behalf, man, they were successful. But as soon as his arms came down, man, they were not successful. And here's the problem, man, his arms got weary. Moses was interceding for the people and he got to the point where the weight was simply too much for him. Man, he couldn't keep his hands in the air any longer. He simply couldn't do it anymore. And the people were perishing. But at that moment, when he simply couldn't go any further, two of his closest friends, his brother Aaron and a man named Hur came and held up his arms. They said, Moses, we can't do this for you, but we can hold up your arms. And the Israelites prepared or prevailed. Guys, there's gonna be a moment when you can't do it anymore. There's gonna be a moment when you're too beat down to resist sexual temptation. When you're, honestly, you're ready to give up on your marriage. Right, when you're totally overwhelmed as a mom. Man, when your kids are breaking your heart. Then when waves of suffering and grief capsize your faith. And in those moments, you need people to hold up your arms. You need someone to speak courage into your heart and to remind you God loves you, he is faithful, and you aren't alone in this. This is why we talk so much about missional communities here at our church, because you need people like Rachel and Leah. Man, you need people that will look at you and say, hey, I know it's scary, I know it's risky, I know you don't know how it's gonna work out, but whatever God has called you to do, do it. You need people that will hold up your arms, you need people that will help you remember the truths of the scriptures and the promises of your God. And the truth is, sometimes you're Jacob and sometimes you're Rachel. So sometimes you're the one called to do the hard thing. 
You're the one called to make the clean break. You're the one called to end the relationship. You're the one called to share the gospel. You're the one called to step out in faith, to go on the mission trip, to start the new group. Sometimes you're Rachel. You're the one called to support the one called to do the hard thing. You're the one called to pray for them and intercede for them and text them and see how they're doing and remind them of the promises of God and remind you that he is going to be faithful to them. Man, both are essential to a healthy Christian community. If we're gonna build a church that supports one another like family, man, sometimes you're gonna be Jacob and sometimes you're gonna be Rachel, but we need both of them. So here's my question. Man, is someone speaking courage into your life? Is someone speaking courage into your life and are you helping hold up someone else's arms? Is someone speaking courage into your life and are you also helping hold up someone else's arms? Here's what I found. I haven't been a pastor that long. I've been a pastor for about 10 years. The lead pastor of this church for about five. And here's what I found. It's very surprising to me. Um, persuading people to live in biblical community is very difficult. It's very difficult. Now, it's not difficult to persuade people to agree with biblical community. You know what I'm talking about? I get up here and preach about community. Everybody's like, amen, yeah, support one another like family. I love it. It's, but it's actually going to group on Wednesday night that's hard to persuade people to do. You know what I'm talking about? And I say that because that's hard for me. It's like not hard to persuade me that it's important. It's hard to persuade me to actually do it. And it meets at my house, <laughs> right? If you ever need good accountability, it's like, I don't wanna go to group tonight. Well, they're coming over anyway, you know? All right, all right whatever. Uh, why is it so hard to get people to join an MC? I mean, I love you. You're here. Lots of you aren't in an MC. You promised yourself you'd be in one. You're not. Or you don't go very often. And I'm not here to beat you up, I'm here to build you up. I just wanna ask the question, why? Right? Why is it so hard for us to do it? And there's some, there's some legitimate practical challenges, okay? I get it, okay? I've got young kids, absolutely, that makes it hard. Work is crazy busy, they've got me working double shifts, like I'm traveling a bunch, that's legit, I understand that. Uh, man, we, you know, we were sick, and then we were out of town, then we were sick again, you go through those seasons. I went to a group, and it was really awkward, I don't wanna go back, yeah, that's happened to me too, right? Or man, I, you know, I, I got hurt, you know, in a past church, and I'm just not ready to, to lean back in. Like, I get it. All, all of these are, are, are real reasons to, to not press into biblical community. All these are real reasons to not have a Rachel, to not have an, an Aaron to hold up your arms. Um, but I think the real question underneath, I think the real thing underneath all of it is we don't actually think we need it. We don't actually think we need it. Because if you were absolutely convinced in the center of your soul that you needed biblical community to be healthy, you'd figure it out, Right? I mean, I would. Like if I was utterly convinced I can't do this thing on my own, I've got to be in biblical community, then I'm, I'm gonna figure it out. I think underneath, we just don't think we actually need it as much as the Bible says that we do. We feel like we're doing okay. You know, it's like my arms are pretty strong. Like I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm doing okay. The problem is that if you wait until your arms are weak to look for somebody to hold them up, they won't be there. You've gotta have people that are helping you hold your arms up before they get weak. And I'm just telling you, I've been in this business long enough to know it's gonna come. Like life gets hard, suffering comes, it comes out of nowhere, you don't see it coming, right? And so what we need to do is we need to build those relationships while our arms are strong so that when our arms are weak, we have somebody to hold them up. Here's the other thing, if you only look for relationships when your arms are weak, guess what you can't do? You can't help anyone else hold their arms up. Right, so if we're gonna be a church that supports one another like family, if we're gonna be a church where we hold each other's arms up, man, we've gotta do it not just when things are hard, but when things aren't hard. Man, we have to simply say, the Bible is right. I need this more than I think I do. I've gotta press in. I've gotta overcome all of the challenges to getting in community. All right, just like Jacob needed, man, Rachel and Lee to speak courage into his heart to obey the word of God, we need people to speak courage into our heart to obey the word of God. Verse 17, 
So Jacob arose, man, his wives encouraged him. Don't have two wives, have one that speaks the word of God in your heart. Um, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father, Isaac. Um, so in this instance, Jacob for once is a positive example to emulate. Do you see what he did? He immediately obeyed the word of God, amen. God was like, do this hard, uncomfortable, risky thing. And he was like, let's do it. Get everybody on the camels, yeah, let's go. Like we're moving, right? Can I just be really honest with you? Hard, difficult things don't get easier when you put them off. <laughs> they get harder. It, like, it doesn't get easier to join a serving team. It doesn't get easier to start tithing. It doesn't get easier to forgive someone. It doesn't get easier to invite your neighbor to church. It gets harder. So do it just like delayed obedience is disobedience. Okay, how many of you parents out there, you tell your kids, I want you to obey the first time with a happy heart, right? Like that's what you want your kids of. Guess what God wants from you? Oh, don't do that, Josh, that was dirty. Right, sometimes we ask more from our kids than we offer to the Lord, right? It's like, well, I'd like my kids to obey me first time with a happy heart, but I'd like to obey God in six months when work gets less crazy. Ooh. I tell you, you know, if I was God, I'd be sending you to your room. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, worth, it's just, Jacob is like, let's do this. This is hard. It's not gonna get any easier. So he does it. I would encourage you in that same way. Okay, this is a very long chapter. So I've got to summarize like a chunk here in the middle, okay? So bear with me uh, so you understand what's going on. All right, so Jacob and his family start traveling. But before they leave, we don't know why, Rachel goes into her dad's house and steals some of his household idols, okay? So uh, Laban was pagan, he didn't know the Lord, so Rachel goes and steals them. We don't know why. We don't know if it was like out of spite because she was mad at her dad or because she didn't want him to like worship idols. So she's like, if I take them, he can't worship them. Either way, if your God can get stolen, he's not a great God, just <laughs> for what that's worth. All right. So they start traveling, all right? And Jacob's trying to get out of Dodge before Laban hears about it. Well, Laban hears about it and he gets all fired up. So he gets all of his sons together, all the, all the other uncles and cousins and stuff, and they all grab weapons and they get on their animals and they go to ride down Jacob's family. This is like a full military pursuit situation, okay? And they, they catch him and then they have this massive confrontation. Now, imagine for a second being one of Jacob's kids. You're like, why does granddad have a sword at daddy's throat? Why does Uncle Joe have a spear? What's going on? You know, like this is a very dramatic situation. All right, so verse 26, the big confrontation occurs. So Laban runs Jacob down and he just starts screaming at him. I mean, he starts accusing him of like kidnapping his daughters and stealing his household idols. I mean, he's just absolutely eviscerating Jacob in front of everybody, right? And so Jacob basically says, look, man, I, I had to get out of Dodge because I thought you might try to take my family from me by force. And based on the fact that you're here with an armed guard, I think I was right, you know? And, and you, know, J, you know, Laban's like, if you would have told me, I would have sent you off with a big party and we would have had such a great time. And it's like, not likely, man. You've been manipulated for like two decades. All right, um, so verse 31, Jacob's like, I ran away because I thought you were gonna take all my family from me, but I didn't steal from you. He's like, go through all my tents, be my guest. I didn't steal from you. If you find anything that's yours, take it. He didn't know that Rachel had taken the idols, okay? Dun, 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 tension, you know, thickets, right? So Laban's like, fine, I will. So he like starts unpacking the whole U-Haul, you know? And he's like, if I find so much as a decorative cup, I'm, you know, this whole thing, right? So they're getting it out, you know, the whole thing. And he's going through all the tents and he goes through Jacob's tent and then Rachel's tent and then, or, and then Leah's tent and then the two, uh, the two servants. And so Rachel's like, oh man, I've got these idols. My dad's gonna find it. So this is ridiculous. So she takes the idols and she puts them under a cushion and then she sits on the cushion. And her dad comes into the tent and she's like, forgive me, father, I can't stand up and greet you because the way of women is upon me. Okay, like translation, my time of the month. 
right? I'm sitting on this cushion. The way of women is upon me. I can't stand up and greet you. And Laban's like, I don't want anything to do with that. And so he just leaves and doesn't find the idols. You can't make this stuff up. Like, that's ridiculous, okay? So, so Laban, you know, Laban doesn't find the idols. And, and so Joseph is vindicated, so, or uh, Jacob is vindicated. So in verse 36, it's Jacob's turn to get really angry, okay? In verse 36, he starts berating Laban. He's like, you've cheated me all these years. You accuse me of all this stuff. If it weren't, if, if the God of my fathers weren't on my side, you still would have sent me away harmed, but God would not allow you to harm me. He saw my affliction and he rebuked you. All right. Now we're to verse 43. You with me still? Great, verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. I mean, he sounds like a toddler, right? Like I was at a playground yesterday and one of our kids went up the top of this slide to go into like a house at the top and there was a door on the house and the door swung open and this four-year-old was like, it's mine. And I was like, honey, there's a demon possessed toddler. Get out of there, you know, like it was crazy, right? That's what Laban is doing. Like he, his, he's just totally delusional. He's totally manipulative. He has no claim to any of this stuff. The, the children aren't his, the wives aren't his, the flocks aren't his. And yet he is screaming, armed Laban with his armed guard, screaming at Jacob, accusing him of being in the wrong, accusing him of being the problem, accusing him of being the manipulative one. That's what Laban did. He used intimidation to get what he wanted. He used fear to keep Jacob under his thumb and it had worked for 20 years. He's like, I'm just gonna keep doing what I've always been doing. I'm gonna throw a gigantic tantrum with a sword in my hand and Jacob is gonna bow down before me and Jacob doesn't. And for the first time in 20 years, Jacob stands up to his uncle and he says, I've done nothing wrong. God has protected me and he rebuked you last night. I'm not coming back to Haran. These are all mine. They're not yours. Deal with it. Verse 44, this is how Laban responds. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Here's what's going on. Laban realizes Jacob isn't backing down. Laban realizes like something has changed in this man's life. And the, and the, the guy that I pushed around for 20 years, I can't push around anymore. Even though I've got this whole armed guard and we're out in the wilderness and nobody would know, he's filled with this incredible courage. He's not backing down. So all I can do is try to draw a line in the sand between us. And so that's what happens in verse 44. This is basically a boundary line. They take a bunch of rocks, they build a little tiny wall and they name it watch post. That's what Galeed means. And basically Jacob says, look, you stay on that side, I'm gonna stay on this side. You stay over there, I'm gonna stay over here. I'm going to the promised land, I'm never coming back and don't you cross this wall or you'll have my God to deal with. The next morning, man, Laban kisses his daughters. He rides off to the sunset and we never hear from him again. After 20 years, of manipulation and oppression and intimidation, something changes in this relationship. All of a sudden, Jacob was filled with remarkable courage in the face of great danger. And we asked the question, where did he get it? Where in the world did Jacob get this kind of courage in the face of this kind of threat? And the answer is from the presence of God. Remember back in verse three, when God told him to leave, he said, arise and go to the land of your kindreds and what? And I will be with you. And then how does Jacob respond to Laban? He doesn't say like, I can fight you, man. He says, no, my God appeared to you last night and rebuked you in your dreams because my God is with me. You see, what Jacob understood was that the presence of God was with him. And so he could be courageous in the face of Laban. Man, if, if you're gonna take risky steps of obedience, if you're gonna, man, allow God to interrupt your life and redirect you, you're gonna need the same thing that Jacob did. Man, we need the presence of God to face our fear. We need the presence of God to face our fear. I mean, imagine being Jacob. Jacob. 
God's like, hey, pick, pick up your family, go back to Canaan. He tries to do so by like secretly, by losing Laban, right? But Laban catches him. He sees dust rising on the horizon. He's like, oh no, here they come. Man, Laban approaches him publicly in front of everybody, man, sword to his throat, screaming at him. I mean, can you even imagine if this happened to you? Man, what if, what if, you, had, what if you had some sort of aggressive in-law, right? That, I mean, like is, is threatening you and screaming at you and, and accusing you of horrible things like, or, or like at a holiday. Like, that would be like traumatic, right? What if this happened to you at work? What if like one of your supervisors, man, who has power over you, power to do you, your harm, like, man, shows up and in front of everybody just starts walking you down and you're the problem and you stole and all of this is mine, man, and you're the problem with this company and you need to go. I mean, what? I think most of, most of us would wither under that kind of criticism. And yet here's Jacob, kind of indoorsy, conniving, passive Jacob, and stands up with incredible courage. And the reason is that he believed in the presence of God. Guys, you're not, you're not gonna face an armed father-in-law. At least I hope you're not gonna face an armed father-in-law. Right, but, but if you're gonna follow the Lord, if, if you're gonna follow Jesus when he calls you, man, you're gonna, you're gonna face some scary things. Man, I, I don't know exactly what it is that you're gonna face. I don't know exactly what it is that you fear, but you're gonna face something. Maybe you're gonna, you're gonna face the fear of stepping into public leadership. Right, and like what's gonna happen if I like step up to lead a group or step up to lead a serving team or step up to lead some sort of Bible study at work and now what if it doesn't go well? What if I fail publicly? That's what Joshua was afraid of in, in Joshua chapter one. Maybe uh, you're afraid of confronting your past man, and dealing with what happened to you, what you did or what was done to you and you're not sure that you'll ever be free of it. And you're a little bit like Moses in the wilderness. He's like, I can't go back to Egypt. I've, I've done some things there that I, I just wanna forget and I can't go back. Uh, maybe you fear being out of control. And you're like, man, if I, don't have, if, if I don't have everything lined up, like we're not gonna be okay and, and, and the world is too chaotic and work is too chaotic and family is too chaotic. And you, you feel like the disciples in John chapter six were like, you're in this little tiny boat in the midst of this massive storm. You're just like, I, I can't deal with my life right now. And you need to hear the words of Jesus walking towards you saying, it is I, do not be afraid. Right, maybe, maybe you have a, a fear of being exposed. Man, being exposed is, is a sinner like you really are. And you walk around with this fear of, of, man, I'm an imposter and if everybody at church knew who I really was and knew the thoughts that I had and the things that I've done, then man, they'll, they'll, they'll never forgive me. You're kind of like Paul when he wanted to be received back by the believers in Jerusalem. They're like, man, you killed people the last time you were here. And fear is, fear is a common experience for the people of God from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And in fact, you might know this, the, the most oft repeated command in the Bible is do not fear. In fact, the command, do not fear, is given 366 times throughout the scripture. So it's a very clear command of God. So we, we need to ask the question, why? All right, why shouldn't we fear? Um, is it because that you're strong enough to handle whatever comes your way? Is it because that there's no chance of failure, that, that God's definitely gonna bless you and keep you from failing or suffering? Is it because the world is a safe place, devoid of evil and enemies? No. And the Bible is very candid and honest with us. The world is a broken place, man, full of sinful and wicked people. And you have a personal, intelligent, supernatural enemy named the devil who wants to do you harm and take you out. Viewed correctly, the world is a very, very scary place to live. The courage to face your fears doesn't come from looking inside of you. It comes from knowing who walks beside you. It comes from knowing that when I walk out into the world full of danger and full of risk and, and full of chaos, Man, I do it with the presence of my God who reigns over it all. 
So a few weeks ago, um, I was out on a walk in our neighborhood uh, with my daughter, Annie. And it was one of those days like I left and it was, the sun was still up, but it was like sinking pretty quickly. And we got kind of far away from the house. And so I was like, ah, oh, it's gonna be like dark when we walk back. And, and so we're starting to walk back and like the, the sun's going down, it's getting, you know, it's getting pretty dark. And like there's woods in our neighborhood, it's like the wood, you know, the trees are kind of moving. I can tell Annie is starting to get really nervous. And, and like, she, you know, she's, she's walking closer to me and the whole thing. Um, and then uh, we're a couple blocks from my house when bats start flying over our head. They're like, this is not gonna go. And Annie just freezes. I mean, I'm not walking anymore. You know, like she's like, she's so scared. Like it's dark and the trees and the bats and, and, and she's terrified. Um, and in that moment, I, I didn't say, um, hey baby, don't be afraid. There's nothing scary in the dark. Because that's not true. There's, there's lots of scary things in the dark. I don't send my seven-year-old out walking by herself in the dark because there are horrible people and horrible things that would, that would seek to harm her. I didn't say don't be afraid because there's nothing to be scared of. I said, baby, you don't have to be afraid because dad is with you. I said, God made me strong to protect you from scary things at night. And anything that comes at you in this night, your dad can handle. As long as you're with me, you have nothing to be afraid of. You see, courage doesn't come from the absence of enemies. It comes from the presence of God. It comes from knowing that he who is with you is greater than he who is against you. It comes from knowing that no matter how angry and powerful and violent your Laban is, your God is stronger and more powerful and in control of every single moment of your life. It comes from actually believing Hebrews 13, five, that says, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear, what can man do to me? It comes from believing that God is committed to you and God loves you and God is with you. That's what Jacob finally realized in this passage. That's why he could face Laban and he could walk courageously into what God had called him to do. And that's what you have to realize. If you're gonna face your Laban, and if you're gonna courageously walk into what God has called you to walk in, then you've gotta know God's love and commitment in your life. And the best place to see his commitment and his love to you is in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Think about, think about how the story of Jacob points us to the story of the gospel, right? The father said to Jacob, arise, depart from Haran and return to the land of your fathers. The father said to Christ, arise, depart from the glories of heaven and go into the brokenness of this world. The father said to Jacob, the destination, the goal of your journey is the promised land, a place of peace, a place of blessing, a place of rest. The father said to Christ, the destination, the goal of your journey is the cross, a piece of cursing, a place of pain, a place of death. When Laban pursued Jacob to do him harm, the father wouldn't allow it. He interceded on Jacob's behalf, but when then the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Romans pursued Jesus to do him harm, the father did not intervene. And Jacob was so flawed, imperfect and sinful, and yet God protected him. And yet Jesus was spotless, perfect and righteous, and yet God did nothing, why? because Jesus was trading places with Jacob and Jesus was trading places with you and me. Friends, when your Laban comes to attack you, you don't deserve to have the power and protection of God around you. 
but it's been given to you as a gift of grace. Because on the cross, Jesus suffered for Jacob's sin and Jesus suffered for my sins, Jesus suffered for your sin. So that through repentance and faith, man, you can be brought into the family of God. And so that you can know no matter where you are walking, that God walks alongside of you. And when you see the love of God and the commitment of God to you on the cross, and it enables you to say with the psalmist in Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than a trusted man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than a trusted princess. So I wanna invite you to bow your heads with me. And I just wanna encourage you in this time to ask God for courage and boldness to do whatever it is that he's calling you to do. And ask God for the courage, ask God for the boldness, man, to keep working on your marriage and to say no to sexual temptation, man, to invest in your kids, to go out on a limb and invite your friend to church, to call up your family member and start the process of reconciliation. Father, your presence with us is what gives us courage to face the world around us. So Holy Spirit, in this moment, I'm just inviting you like the early church did in Acts chapter four, would you fill us with boldness? Would you fill us with courage? Would you fill us with clear vision of the angel armies that surround your people? Would you remind us that no matter what stands against us, it is nothing compared to the one who stands behind us? Or would you make us a church full of people that are courageous and that are bold and that take risky steps of obedience because we believe there is no true risk when we are following the almighty God. Or we love you and we need you. Pray these things in Christ's name. This morning, we have the opportunity